God has a plan. He so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, to take care of the problem of sin and death. But shortly after Jesus rose from the dead, he left. There were only a handful of disciples who knew the truth, and the whole world needed to hear the gospel and be transformed by its power. What could so few do? The secret to God's plan is that a disciple transformed by the love of Jesus is compelled to bear fruit and reproduce other disciples. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, a chain reaction produces exponential multiplication. Over the last few weeks, we saw God miraculously transform the life of Saul from one who persecuted and imprisoned Christians to one who preached boldly the name of Jesus. We followed Peter as he healed people and boldly preached the good news. What started in Jerusalem spread throughout all of Judea and even into Samaria. Who knows where it will go next? This is the book of Acts. Man, I can't tell you how excited I am uh, to enter into uh, the book of Acts this morning. Uh, In many ways, I hope you're buckled up because uh, as I've had the privilege this week to travel back into the book of Acts and to work through the story that we are going to have the opportunity to enter into, I have discovered in this story that God is up to some unbelievable things in his revelation to us as to the power and wonder of the continual discovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I I want you to imagine in some ways with me what it might look like, what a story might look like if God wanted to take all of these different sort of lines of, of truth that we have discovered along the way in our journey and have them all collide simultaneously and go, here it is. Here is the full expression of what happens when all the truths we've discovered in following Jesus and listening into the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, if they all come together, this is what you're going to tend to see happen. And that's sort of what's happening in the story that we're going to get into today. So if you can imagine with me for a second, this should be our experience today in some ways. If each truth that we have discovered along the way uh, through following Jesus and and following the book of Acts was a color, a line of color, so red was coming down here and that was an extraordinary truth we discovered through the life and teaching of Jesus and then here was a blue line coming, another great truth and here was an orange one over here and a a green one shooting up here and we could kind of step back and go, what would happen if all those truths entered into one story and God said, I want to show you what this looks like. And they hit each other and exploded into color. That in many ways was my experience this week as I worked through the story we are going to enter into. So in order to enter into that story in a manner that you would recognize these truths coming at us and colliding, I think it's important we go back and summarize just for a few minutes what are some of these extraordinary truths that we have discovered in following Jesus through the scriptures and into the book of Acts, right? So just real briefly, remember that in in essence, the story of God and man began in Genesis where we were created with this unbelievable purpose and reality to know the full freedom of God in relationship with him and to display that full freedom in imaging him. And we chose to pursue our own divinity uh, and to image our own image instead of God's. And so we found ourselves living in a life that God describes as death. And and it it feels that way a lot of the time, right? And in that journey, it looked like the human story was just going to unfold into complete destruction. But God begins a story of rescue early on through promises first and then through a sequence of events. The first event where we really see, in essence, God's plan to reveal himself fully is in a nation that we know as the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. They are born, if you will, Uh, in the story of Joseph and his brothers in Egypt. Over 400 years after the time of Joseph, they grow into a nation. They're enslaved by Egypt. God effects a massive rescue plan, pulling them out of Egypt. And from that point on, he reveals himself to the Jewish people by giving them instructions on how to live protectively from the darkness that surrounds them. You see, us humans were incredibly vulnerable to the continual influences of darkness, death, and sin because it was in us. 
and we were unredeemed. And so at any point in time that we interacted with darkness, death, and sin, it consumed us. It made us unclean even more than we already were. It continued to just show itself in us. So God takes the Jewish people, he pulls them out from the world, and he says to them, I'm gonna preserve you, protect you, watch over you, I'm gonna show the world what it looks like when you live under the divine protection and authority of God, but here's the deal, okay? If you touch, if you go, if you talk to, if you enter into the darkness, into anybody else's world, it will consume you. It will take you captive. So don't go there, okay? Stay here. Only marry these people. Only hang out with these people. Don't go and just just be real, real, real careful. So God says to the Jewish people that at any point in time that you step out of the protective layer that I have now put around you, you're going to fall hard and fast because you're gonna get taken captive by the realities of the darkness. And we see this pattern in the story of Israel, right? As long as they hang out right here inside the protective circle of the law and they're watching out like, oh my gosh, the darkness is so scary, it's coming. I hope this holds up. Uh, They're okay, but they step out, bam, taken captive. So they're entirely story is free captive rescuer comes redeemer rescues them maybe it's a judge maybe it's a prophet maybe whatever and then they're free and I'm so sorry God I'm so, back out in the darkness bam head over taken captive help help and then rescue and then I'm so sorry God and then back bam and then take this is their entire story right just one story of freedom captivity freedom captivity and all in the vulnerability of this so they learned quickly even in Jewish tradition to make sure that they established a bunch of additional laws that weren't even in the Old Testament to kind of go, look, because we know if we so much as touch the darkness, ow, it bites, and then we die. And so we're gonna establish a defensive position, hold our ground, stay clean from everything, wash ourselves every time we touch anything, and wait for God to rescue us. Because you see, in that same story, God had also promised that this story that was unfolding, that was rhythmic in terms of captivity and rescue, captivity and rescue, that he was actually preparing to send them at some point a Messiah, a rescuer, a a, a person that would come and would rescue them to such an extent that it would transcend this sin and death experience and that they would ultimately be free from this rhythm of captivity once and for all. So, from an observational standpoint, the Jewish people made a conclusion. They said, we are constantly occupied by the darkness, other nations, and at some point, God's gonna come, he's gonna rescue us from the other nations, he's gonna rise us up and transcend us by his might and power, he's gonna overcome the other nations, and we're gonna be safe because he's gonna overcome the darkness with his might and power and transcend us to live above it. And so obviously, This is the paradigm under which the Jewish people live, right? Stay away from the darkness. God will come rescue us in a big way someday and we're vulnerable to anything unclean. And then Jesus enters into the story, right? And what is it we began to learn as Jesus entered into the story? Well, he comes into the story and we start going, maybe he is the rescuer. And for the Jewish people, that meant, yes, it looks like he's going to finally rescue us from the other nations. And in particular, the nation they were most concerned about was the Roman Empire. Because at the time of Jesus, that was the empire that had them occupied. And I'll give you this, one of the most powerful empires that had ever reigned on planet earth so this is a big one and they're under captivity with the romans and so they start to conclude that jesus is going to rise up and by his might and power he is going to utilize his power to overthrow the roman government set them free from rome and then set them free from everybody And it makes sense, doesn't it? Except for the fact that Jesus shows up and starts breaking all the rules. He starts doing everything all wrong. Now you're looking at him like, what are you you doing, man? The first thing he does is he takes every boundary, every border that you're supposed to stay behind because the darkness is right there waiting for you. And he walks right past the things, man. 
He starts touching all sorts of unclean stuff. He starts touching all sorts of unclean people. He starts hanging out with all the wrong ones. And so you look at him and you're constantly not even sure if you can touch him because he must be so unclean it's not even funny. And so you watch Jesus walk right through the boundaries that were set and go, those boundaries were protecting you from the vulnerability that exists in you because you're enslaved to sin. So the darkness was going to take you. But I'm not in that camp. When I walk out of the boundary into the darkness, the darkness doesn't hurt me. I hurt the darkness. I go into the darkness. I touch the unclean. It becomes clean. Because you see, I am the Redeemer. I am the one that makes all things new. And so we began to follow Jesus and went, whoa, whoa, whoa. are you telling me that you have the power to go out into the darkness and overcome it instead of it overcoming you? Yes, ding, check. Unclean things are no longer dangerous because we go make them clean. Jesus says that. Then Jesus teaches us and he says, look, here's the deal, okay? The nature of the kingdom of God, the new paradigm, the new day that is dawning is this, that the kingdom of God actually advances into darkness. It actually advances into places it doesn't belong. The reason you thought that that wasn't happening is because the kingdom of God was protecting you from the darkness by keeping you separated, separated from the world completely, but you are not the kingdom of God. And so now that the kingdom of God has come, Jesus said, I am the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God. God is near. It's right here. It's talking to you. Uh, that has changed everything now because from here on forward, you're not shrinking back. We're moving in. And he says this, the kingdom of God is like a mustard plant, right? You remember this one? And that's where we all go. If you're Jewish, you go, oh, mustard plant, kill it, kill it now. Why? Because when you plant a mustard seed in a garden, if you don't watch that thing like a hawk, it grows and consumes the entire garden. It's like a weed of weeds. It's like the master weed. And you're like, that thing's unbelievable. And so you pull it out and you're like, oh no, the mustard plant's way too dangerous. It takes everything. You pull it out, you turn around, pow, another thing pops up. Once you planted that seed, man, it never goes away. It's in your ground, you in trouble. So he's like, the, the kingdom of God is like a mustard plant. Wherever it goes, it pops up in places it doesn't belong. It works its way into things it can't get into. If you think you're safe from the freedom of the gospel, now nah, you got another thing coming. It's coming for you. And Jesus goes, that's the kingdom of God. It advances like a mustard plant. So we, we don't have to live in fear of the darkness. We are now starting to realize that our Redeemer walks into the darkness, touches it, makes it clean, and consumes it, and that's the nature of the kingdom to which we might now belong. And then Jesus begins to teach us this too in both his teachings and his life. See, you thought, I came here to rescue one nation from all the other nations. That's, that's a cakewalk, man. I could blink my eye and they'll all cease to exist. That's, not, that's, that's, that's nothing. I'm not here to save you from all the other nations. I'm here to save all the nations from the darkness that is behind everything that's happened. I'm here to go to war against the principalities and powers that have you enslaved. I'm here to overcome sin and death. I'm not here to overcome Rome. I'm here to overcome sin and death. And if I overcome sin and death, listen man, the advancement of the kingdom through the redemptive process of making the unclean clean that will overthrow all nations. I don't need a sword. I've got something much, much, much bigger. And so we started realizing, hold. Jesus is saying he's not here to rescue the Jewish people from all of us. He's here to rescue all of us from the darkness, from death, from sin. He was separating the Jewish people out to reveal his promised plan through them to us. Now it's no longer just about them, it's about all of us. And we stood and went, that is amazing. But that's all still things we've watched Jesus do and we've watched him say. 
So we enter the book of Acts and we start seeing evidence of this reality. And now we enter into a story where from a Jewish perspective, you are going to see the collision of all of these realities into one story and go, oh my goodness, it's all true and it's bigger than I thought. How does he do that? Let's take a look. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts chapter 10. You've got, the, you've got the setting now into which we need to enter into the story. And now we're going to enter in Acts chapter 10, verse 1, on page 597 of the Bibles that are under our seats. 597, or Acts chapter 10, verse 1. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. That's where the story begins. Now, I, I, I gotta stop there for a second because I gotta give you a quick little insight into what we've just read from a Jewish perspective, right? The Jewish people are still under the occupation of Rome. When you're under the occupation of some nation, the representation of that occupation is best found in the uniformed military officers, right? Because that's why you're occupied, because they have a big, strong army, okay? And so when you have a military officer, in your occupied place, that is your easiest enemy to project onto. That's the bad guy, right? So God starts this story this way. In Caesarea, Caesarea was the hub of all of the Roman military activity that would flow out from Caesarea into the nation of Israel. If you needed to call base camp, it was Caesarea. So Caesarea was a place that by definition, when you said Caesarea, in a Jewish mind, you thought Rome. Rome, Rome's hub right there. The military powerhouses in Caesarea. And in Caesarea, we bump into a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman soldier in the Roman hub of military activity in the occupied nation. That's where we begin the story. But he's not just a Roman soldier. Oh, no, no, no. It gets much worse. He's a centurion. A centurion was the commanding officer over 100 Roman soldiers. And 100 Roman soldiers could take out an entire army. You have to understand, this was no joke, right? A centurion was paid five to eight times more than a Roman soldier, and Roman soldiers were paid well. So a centurion was generally a wealthy man, generally a prominent man, generally politically connected, and generally very, very, very strong, okay? Because to be a centurion, you had to beat up the hundred guys you were leading. It was pretty crazy. And Cornelius belongs to the Italian cohort. A cohort was six uh, different sets of centurions with their six sets of hundred men together into one little group. So a cohort was generally 600 men, six centurions, and they worked together as a single unit. In parts of the world that were particularly volatile, like the area that they're in, a cohort could oftentimes be actually a thousand Roman soldiers with 10 centurions. That was generally speaking what a cohort was. So when you were part of a cohort, that meant you were not only a centurion, but you were a very well-connected, very powerful centurion. And just for FYI, it's not in the story, if you ever hear the word a Roman legion, a legion was usually made up of 10 cohorts. That's how they defined the legion. So a legion was generally between 6,000 men and 10,000 men. So we start our story with a character who's a Roman soldier, centurion, leader, cohort guy in Caesarea. If you were going to design a story that was going to hit all the touch points of this is bad, that's a good sentence to start with. That's a good sentence to start with. Now, we do find out something else about this guy. It says in verse 2, a devout man who feared God with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So what God is doing here is he's saying this, he's giving us some insight. On a big picture, bad guy. But on the inside of his heart, on the inside, he's giving us an insight and saying, but this bad guy, quote unquote, was actually a man that was a seeker of God. 
He was seeking God. Remember, we just saw Paul converted just recently. And in the Jewish context, if you could pick a man that was least likely to ever know Jesus, you'd pick Paul, right? In the Jewish context. So you'd go, Jews are gonna come to know Jesus except for Paul, he's not. Wow, God did that anyway. Unbelievable, gospel's powerful. But a bigger jump than that, if you asked a Jewish person, more likely, Paul comes to Jesus or the Gentiles come to Jesus. Oh, Paul, Paul for sure. I mean, that's, that's a cakewalk. The Gentile pagan horrors? No. What about a Roman soldier? No. What about a centurion? Never. That's what you would get. But we get some insight that as a beginning point to this new story, God's saying, the guy I'm starting the story with is already a seeker. He already kind of loves me kind of wants to know more about me. Now, by being a devout man of God, what that means is that he was somebody that had understood that the God of the Jews, the God we serve, our creator and sustainer, was an awesome God. We don't know for sure if he was the only God the centurion served. It's very possible. It's also possible that he now had become the main God the centurion served. But he was a seeker interested in the things of God. And we know this because his response was outward, right? He gave to the poor and he prayed for people. You don't do that if you're pretending. If you're pretending, you just show up and give as little as possible. But if you're in for real, suddenly you release what you have to the things of God. And this is what this guy did. But we also know he wasn't Jewish yet, so he had not come to go through the conversion process of becoming Jewish. So he is fully Gentile Roman soldier with a seeker's heart after God. So, <laughs> I would read on, but here's the thing about this story. See, this is the longest story in the book of Acts. It is the longest single narrative in the entire book of Acts. It stretches a boatload of verses, and Luke repeats himself in this story three different times. He tells the whole story three different ways. you sort of like, if I read this to the congregation, my 45 minutes are up like that. I can't do that. Do you wonder, do you ever wonder when you get to a, a part of something, the longest story, the person telling the biggest chunk of the message, the most repetitive nature of it, what do you think that usually says? Well, in my world, it says, this is important, pay close attention. See, God bothered to say, of all the stories in the book of Acts, of all the things you need to watch carefully, this one is at the top of that list. It's the longest, it's repeated three times, you don't miss this one. So instead of reading, I'm just gonna bounce through it and tell you some of the story, okay? So here's the deal. Cornelius is hanging out and he's praying and an angel shows up and talks to him and goes, hey Cornelius, I, I wanna be very specific with you about what's next, okay? I want you to go down to Joppa, which is 31 miles south of Caesarea. There's a guy named Peter there. Peter needs to tell you some stuff, so I want you to go get him and bring him here. Now, Peter had a reputation already because remember, Peter's traveling around and raising the dead, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that'll sort of do it for you, right? I mean, that'll get you pretty known pretty quick. And so wherever Peter goes, it seems like big things are happening. Everybody kind of knows. So you can imagine uh, this centurion, Cornelius, going, okay, hold on. One, I'm seeing an angel. What is that? Two, you're telling me to go to Joppa and get Peter? Three, Peter is a Jew, I've lived in this place long enough to get at how Jews work, right? They don't talk to Gentiles. They don't walk on the same street as Gentiles. They don't visit Gentile homes. They don't hang out with Gentiles. They don't like us. They don't talk to us. We unclean. And so the angel says, I want you to go and I want you to get Peter. So the centurion says, okay, I'm gonna send two servants and a Roman soldier down to Joppa to go and get Peter. Joppa's 31 miles, so if you figure by foot, which is generally how they traveled, you're looking at a couple of hours travel, right? So if you leave in the morning, you get there mid to late afternoon, and then you'll usually travel the next day. So they leave in the morning and they head down. So I start wondering, before I read the rest of the story, what's Peter gonna think when uh, these guys get down there? Knock, knock, hello. I am a Roman soldier with two servants of a centurion who's part of an Italian cohort, and he'd like to see you. <laughs> trap, 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 run for your life, right? I mean, I'm like, what's God gonna do to get Peter there? Not only trap, but Gentile. I mean, he's got an out. 
uh, you look Gentile, go away, right? I mean, that, that's, that's what you expect. But in the meantime, as always, when God is up to showing us something unbelievable about the wonder and power of the gospel, his intent and sovereignty does not fail us, right? So while this is going on in Caesarea and the guys are traveling down the road, God's up to something with Peter. Take a look. Verse nine, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the hilt on the housetop uh, about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. What a fascinating thing to tell me in scripture. Why do I need to know that? Peter went to pray on the roof, but he was kind of hungry, so he wanted to eat. But he was on the roof, and it was the prayer hour, so he was kind of stuck. So, you would think what God would do is give him manna now from heaven, right? It's Peter. I mean, after all, you're the most faithful. You must get the best stuff, right? No. And so take a look, right? Suddenly something crazy happens. God brought him into a trance. He fell in a trance and he saw heaven opened up something like a great sheet descending, being let down by four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Some dirty animals in there, dirty, yucky animals, okay? And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. <laughs> okay, so just so you know, just in the context, God lets the sheet down and there's all sorts of creatures running around the sheet and a lot of them are unclean creatures. You don't touch them, you don't eat them. And God goes, Pete, you hungry? Kill them, eat them. And you know, if you're Peter, you know this is a test. This is a te- God's testing me. I'm really hungry and he's giving me the temptations of unclean foods. So Peter does what I would have done in that scenario, frankly. Peter goes, but Peter said, verse 14, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Go, Pete, star for Pete, gold star on the little shirt, beautiful. (laughs) Except that's not what God's up to. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Huh, is this another trick? That sounds like a secondary trick. But God did say, if he calls it clean, it's clean. Now look at this, I love this. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. It's like, he just mentions that, Luke's like, it, it took Peter a while, okay? What's, what's, what I've made clean is clean. Uh, no, 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 I'm not touching the lizard. Okay, let me start from scratch, Peter. Eat and kill. Uh, No, no, I've never eaten anything unclean. What I've made clean is clean. No, no, I'm not touching the lizard. I mean, can you imagine this? Three times this happens, right? And it's kind of like my world. Okay, please listen to your dad. No, I think my idea is better. No, it's not. Listen to your dad. But I don't really think my idea is better. It's not better. Listen to your dad. No, for real. Okay, in your room, right? I mean, that's kind of what's happening here. And literally, look at this, verse, verse 17, it says this, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, because he never did get any food, right? So it wasn't clearly to feed him. So he's like, God, what was that about, man? I don't understand. While this is happening, the guys knock on the door. Knock, knock. Peter goes down and he opens the door and here's a, a soldier and two servants and they tell Peter the story. We, we, we're servants of uh, Cornelius. He's a centurion up in Caesarea. We're down here because Cornelius had this dream with this angel. We didn't see the angel. I'm just saying I'm a messenger. Don't kill the messenger. And the centurion sent me down here to tell you to come b- back up there. It's not a trap he told me to tell you. He swears. Right? I mean, can you imagine that conversation? So Peter's hanging out that night and he says to them, well, why don't we stay the night? Because you've traveled 31 miles to go back during the night is not good even if you have a Roman soldier with you. And so he goes, chill here for the night. And the next morning, Peter gets up, he gets dressed and he says, all right, boys, let's head up to Caesarea. Now you have to understand for Peter, this is a big deal. Now I know he's courageous. I know he's seen a lot from God, but this is kind of a new level of insanity. Peter, you're going to Caesarea, the hub of where the Roman soldiers are. You are kind of a controversial fella. I mean, there's, there, there are some Sadducees that would like to see you dead. They're well connected to the Romans. You're going to a Gentile's house to go visit with him in his house. That breaks all sorts of laws in the Jewish context. This is a bad idea. Your camp's going to hate you. The enemy's going to hate you. It's probably a trap. You're probably going to die. You don't do this. 
and Peter goes with them, and he gets to the house uh, in Caesarea, and of course Cornelius is all excited to see Peter, because we know he's a devout man of God, but Peter doesn't really know that yet, and he's heading up, so get, what, what do you do when somebody special's coming to your house that's going to be in town for like a day and tell you all about God? You get all your friends together, right? So Cornelius, he's called all sorts of friends together, most of them probably Roman soldier families, so it's bad because it's in the house, they're Gentile, they're Roman, they're soldiers, it's all bad, and the house is full of like 30 to 40 people hanging out in the house. It's not a big house, right? And so Peter gets there, knock, knock. Oh, we're so glad to see you. And it's like, oh my goodness, there's a lot of unclean folks in this house. <laughs> so he gets to the house. Cornelius falls down on his knees and worships Peter. Peter says, ah, 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 get, get up, man. Look, just human, <laughs> just human. I'm nothing special. God's doing some things in me. That's all I got. Stand up. Cornelius gets up and then Peter explains himself to them. And I think it was for our benefit more than for theirs because I don't know that they really cared, but we sure do. Take a look. In verse 28, Peter said, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate um, with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent, I came without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? See, this is where we realize that Peter, through the night while he was sleeping, he got it. He was like, no way. Jesus was reminding him, listen, I told you the kingdom of God is going to move forward and advance into the boundaries and borders that you thought were impossible. I told you we were going to go to the Gentiles. I told you we were going to take Rome down, but not by sword and might, but by redemption and love. And I told you that when I touch unclean things, they become clean. So hang with it, go, don't care about what the Jewish camp thinks, don't care about what the enemy camp thinks, go where I tell you, do what I tell you to do, because I'm about to do something crazy cool. And Peter went, got it, unclean things, clean now, I'm on it. And he went to the Gentile's house. And then Cornelius says to him, well, we were hoping you'd tell us about God. I love that kind of deal, right? I mean, you're about to jump into the Gentile camp. That's scary enough, so God makes it pretty easy first round, right? First round, we pick a devout man who wants to know about God, a seeker. We're not gonna start with the Paul of the Gentiles. We're gonna start right down at the bottom with the seeker guy who's already loving Jesus. He just doesn't know it, right? So Peter, verse 34, opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. And then, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then Peter goes on to describe the gospel, the wonderful work of Jesus, the good news. And right around the corner, in verse 44, it says this. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised, that's the Jewish guys, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. It's like, oh my goodness, the Samaritans, I get it, but now the Gentiles, the gospel has no business here. It should not be able to rescue these guys. But not only, listen now, not only is it rescuing these guys, but he is empowering them with the same Holy Spirit he's empowered us with, which means they're not just rescue soul scenario, they are restored purpose scenario. Are you saying that God's going to use the very Gentiles he just rescued to continue to advance the gospel into the Gentile world? Yep, that's what I'm saying. It's mind-blowing. God's not just using the Jewish people to rescue the Gentiles. He's empowering the Gentiles to become redeemers. It's unbelievable. And so suddenly, if you're watching this, maybe Peter saw it, maybe it only came later, but it suddenly dawns on you, hold on a second, hold on, the weapons that God is using to overthrow entire uh, uh, empires are not the weapons of this world. They're not swords and might and anger and vengeance and power and, and military uh, wonder. They are something altogether different. They are weapons from another world and another place. What weapons is Jesus using? 
He's using weapons that don't overthrow nations. They overthrow powers and principalities in dark places. They overthrow strongholds. Listen. Listen to this real quick. Uh, Paul writes later on in the book of Corinthians, and he says it so beautifully. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I mean, you're like, are you kidding me? This is what we're seeing here. That when God wants to overthrow a Roman government, he doesn't do it by chopping off their heads. He does it by redeeming their hearts. And you're like, wow, that's unbelievable. And we saw it happen over the next 300 years. We saw the redemptive process overthrow the Roman government, not the sword. And suddenly we enter into a world and we suddenly go, whoa. You mean that if we are weak, we are not a soldier, we are not powerful, we don't have prestige and wealth and all the things that this world could use against each other to advance our image and our cause, that we can still advance because the weapons we're given are weapons of the fruit of the Spirit, weapons of the armor of God, weapons that come in underneath the power and redeem the heart. And you stand here, and just as those Jewish people stared in and went, the gospel is so big. It's so big. It's so powerful. It's better than a sword. Because Cornelius and the entire group of people in the house came to know Jesus that day. And you know Cornelius started telling people. He wasn't a shy man. And so for me, coming into the end of the week, I got to stare into the story and go, this is the gospel I carry, you understand? This is the gospel I have. This is the gospel I've been given. No wonder Paul says, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all the Jews first and then the Gentiles. You don't hold a message that is awkward that you share with a bunch of people you're trying to convert to come to a church so they can give you money. That is awkward. That is uncomfortable. Who wants to do that? Nobody. But we carry a reality, a reality of such extraordinary power that it takes unclean things and makes them clean. It takes dead things and makes them alive. It advances into the darkest spaces of this planet and it empowers us to walk into those dark spaces and dare to confront the darkness. Dare to. So I was pretty encouraged on Thursday and Friday. Yes, this is why we do it. The gospel is reason enough to dare the darkness, to walk out of the protective realities of God and go, I'm going in because I have God. I don't need the little protections. He's in me. He is with me. I'm going into the darkness. And then something happened in my life that reminded me that the darkness bites back. It sure does. You want to go into the darkness? You want to go, oh, this can be awesome. Uh, don't carry prosperity with you in there because it bites back and it hurts when it bites. God does not protect us from what the darkness tries to do to us. He just protects us from the darkness. So Friday night, uh, Friday was a pretty decent day at my house. Kids were normal, so you know, that says it all. And um, <clears throat> so, you know, by the end of a normal day in my world, I'm, per I'm pretty done, you know. I mean, normal is, is suck out. And, um, and so we get to the end of the day. I put on a movie for them before bedtime. I let them watch the whole movie. That carries us into like 9.20 at night. You know, from 8.30 onward, that's my wife and my time. And when they infringe on that, it, it's, it's already big grace. I'll give you another minute of, of the few seconds we have together. So we advance into 9.20 and the movie's over. They had a little dessert. I mean, everything's going well for them. That day I'd done all sorts of wonderful little things for them. I had a whole list. I keep track now just to remind them. And, um, <coughs> and uh, so I say this to them. It's really simple. I, I say, okay, guys, once you go upstairs, I want you to get ready for bed. Once you brush your teeth, get in bed, okay? Do it quick, do it fast. Don't fight, don't kick, don't bite, don't spit, don't speak, don't touch, don't move. Don't do anything else, just go do that. I have a list of that as well because they figure out which one I missed and then do that. So I go, no, 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 we're gonna stick with the list today. And so I go do it fast because every minute that passes on the way up the stairs and, and brushing teeth only adds to the potential possibility of a disaster. And so I'm like, just get, just get in the bed. Once you're in the bed, no one's with you, you're safe. And so 
they go up and I'm like, after a day like today, I mean, I've got a, I've, I've got a solid 2% chance. I mean, that's a, that's a good chance because usually it's minus 29. And so they head up and uh, one of my dear children um, uh, acci- accidentally um, bothers another child and so um, then she accidentally bother- bothers him back and then there's kicking and then, and then there's hitting and then there's some things involved and the screaming escalates. So I come tearing up the stairs. You would hope I'm tearing up the stairs because I know that if I can de- defuse it at just the right moment, everything will be peaceful, but now I'm mad now. <laughs> I'm mad now. I'm not tearing up the stairs to go, defuse, defuse, I'm tearing up the stairs to do this. Come on, I mean, come on, how hard is this? I mean, I just go up and brush and bed and now this and look at the things I've done for you and, and then you start this one. And you you're always the problem i mean it's all you always do this you all go to your room and then the other one's like yeah i'm like and you you overreact and say yeah and then the darkness comes right it comes fast and i see my poor little daughter just unravel before my eyes and as she sinks into those dark places we all tend to go sometimes i go oh no oh no and my response to this isn't like whoa settle down renault fight with the weapons of the gospel not the weapons of the world i go no 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 i'm going to pull out bigger weapons of the world i'll stop this in its tracks cuz my enemy's in front of me uh, she's small but she's in front of me yeah and so i forget that the real enemy is not in front of me. The real enemy's behind her, and he's much bigger, but the weapons I have in the gospel can overcome, but the weapons I'm pulling out now just feed that reality. So I go there, man, and I'm like, back and forth, and, and finally I'm like, I'll calm her down, and so I take her on the bed, and I'm holding her, and she's like, let me go, and I'm, I'm, I'm holding her, and I'm like, no, I love you, but I'm, I'm saying it mad, because half my head is like, feeling so sad for my child and the other half still mad so the sad thought comes out mad you know you understand you've been there maybe not but I have and so I'm I'm shouting at her and and my wife comes in the room and my wife says let me take her and I uh, no, uh-uh. I got her here I'm getting her out of this you don't get to take her away from me. so I'm like no no and my wife can see I'm, I'm not in a great place and and so she's like let me just take her and then I'm like no I've got her but the nine-year-old's still here going <laughs> screaming and so finally my wife says something I don't even remember what but it was something like you know this is not good or, or whatever and I shout at the top of my lungs I turn to my wife but my nine-year-old's face is right here and I go I go Well, our whole house is falling apart. What do you want me to do? (laughs) Ha, 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 Renault the Mighty, okay? And as I shout that, have you ever had a Sully moment out of uh, Monsters, Inc., where, where the monster's screaming, and then he sees a video of himself, and he's like, whoa, I'm, I'm scaring kids to death. I had a Sully moment. I'm like, because my daughter just imploded, man. It's like, and I'm like, what just happened? And my wife, In quietness, she just looks at me and with a deep, deep sense, she just says, it's just too much, man. It's all just too much. It's too much for her, it's too much for me, it's too much for my wife, it's too much for our family. I'm laying on this bed, my daughter's crashing and burning. I'm more mad than I am sad. My son's in the other room screaming his head off because I hurt his feelings and and my other kids have scrambled into their beds. I mean, strategically, that is one way to get them in their beds really fast. <laughs> so um, I, guess, I guess that does work, positive outcome. But, um, uh, but I'm laying on the bed there, and, and I gotta tell you guys, I gotta tell you as I was laying on that bed, the first thought that entered my mind is maybe she's right. Maybe my wife is right. I mean, for the first time in a long time, I just laid there and I thought, maybe she's right. Maybe this is all just too much. Maybe this is all just too crazy. And in that moment, something absolutely wondrous happened. See, all this work I'd done all week studying this about the gospel being powerful enough to go out there and enter into the Gentile worlds and advance into the darkness and all that encouragement I felt about that the gospel is reason enough to enter the darkness, to enter the fray, to fight. 
fight for the things of God and to, to bring love and joy and peace and, and redemption and wonder. The gospel's reason enough to do that. It's reason enough to risk it. It's reason enough to walk out of safety into mission. All that, all week long. And here I lay and I'm dying under the weight of the darkness. And I lay there and suddenly God says to me, the gospel's enough for you, bro. It's enough for you too. It's not just enough for all of them. It's enough for you. You don't think when you walk into darkness it's not going to bite back. It's going to bite back. And sometimes you're going to feel crushed and dead under its weight. But I already knew that. And it's enough for you. And it's going to be okay. Because the gospel that goes out with you is also the gospel that continually rescues you. And as much as you feel that your wife is right and as much as she feels that truth in that statement, when you are hopeless... And the gospel is still there saying, you may not feel the hope now, but the hope is coming because the gospel never fails us. Do you know why it never fails us? Do you know why we can lay in that place and still know that it's enough for us even though we have been consumed by darkness because we are no longer dark, we are light. That's our identity. And the gospel is, you ready for this? It is the power of God. You'll hear me say a lot here at Mosaic, I'm obsessed with the gospel. I'm possessed by the gospel. I possess the gospel. I live for the gospel. And you might go, uh, where's Jesus, man? Sounds like the gospel's like this thing. And it's like, that's what you're obsessed with. No, 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 you don't understand. What is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus and his redemptive work and his death on the cross and his resurrection and his rescue of my soul and his restoration of my purpose. The gospel is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit in me and around me and with me and empowering me and sealing me and rescuing me and setting me right before God. The gospel is the Father and his sovereignty and his compassion and his love and his wonder that is after my soul. The gospel is redemption. The gospel is the kingdom of God. The gospel is advancement. The gospel is hope. The gospel is rescue. The gospel is everything. The gospel is just a word we use when we want to bring it all into the same space and go, it's all of it. It's the whole shebang. It's all the power of God. It's my hope. It's your hope. It's our hope. It is the story of redemption. So when I say I'm possessed by the gospel, I'm possessed by all of that. And when I say the gospel rescues me today, it is the Spirit of God rescuing me today. And when I say the gospel rescued me 2,000 years ago, it is the Son of God, Jesus, who died on a cross and rose again. And when I say the gospel rescued me before the beginning of creation itself, it is the Father's sovereign hand loving my soul before he ever made me. And when I say the gospel will save me in the future, it is that my hope is sealed for all of eternity. And so, yes, I have learned something this week. That the gospel is reason enough to risk the darkness, live on mission, give more away than we thought we should, do more than we thought was possible. Within the bounds of God's call on our life. But the gospel is also enough that when the darkness bites back, it still promises redemption. It still promises hope, and it still rescues us. The gospel is enough to hold me together even when I feel like I have lost my right to be a child of God. <laughs> because I'm not a child of God because I behave well. I'm a child of God because the gospel was enough for me. It came and got me. It rescued me. It restored me. It redeemed me. Because the gospel is Jesus. The gospel is the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the Father. The gospel is my rescue. So when we leave here, out of this story, let us be reminded. Let us be reminded 
that the gospel's bigger than we ever thought it was. It's more powerful than we ever thought possible. And that when we fight with the weapons of this world, anger, malice, strife, revenge, strategy, stab, backstabbing, entitlements, and rights, we fight the people that are not our enemies. We fight the nations, right? God's gonna rise me up to be right above all of you pagan family members <laughs> because you are my enemy and I am with God. And behind that stands the spiritual powers in dark places with a big smile on their face ear to ear and go, you fight with the weapons of the world because they're mine. But the gospel reminds us that we get to stand and stare at those nations, those people, those family members, that spouse, those children, that boss, that coworker, and we get to look at them and say, you cannot hurt me because you are not my enemy. My enemy sits behind you and I know how to fight him. They are weapons, not of this world, but weapons empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ and they overcome strongholds and principalities in dark places. So I'm coming for you because I carry the gospel and it's reason enough to come for you and it's enough so when you bite me, I won't die. Let's go do that. Let's pray. God, thank you for the promises that you made to rescue us and redeem us and restore us. Thank you for the gift you gave us to be empowered by your spirit. Spirit of God, thank you for the work you do in us, through us, around us, to advance your kingdom and bring glory to your name. Thank you that we have the mandate, the calling to walk into the darkness and no longer live in the fear of sin taking us down but advancing and knowing that even when the darkness bites, influences and shapes us sometimes, that you are still enough for us. Thank you for the redemptive realities that are always born out of these horrid moments. Thanks for the conversations I got to have with those children later that night and the next day. Thanks for the things you've shown me through that horrid experience. And thanks that you reminded me once again that just when I thought I knew how big the gospel was, I had no idea. I had no idea yet. And I still do not have any idea of how big your story gets. So give me courage, give us courage to advance into those dark places, to be redemptive, to walk into the quote unquote Gentiles homes, to bring them into our homes. And as the world watches in and says, what are you doing? They're unclean, they're messing everything up, they're, they're breaking everything. May we smile and go, yes, yes. But the gospel is reason enough and the gospel is big enough to make this beautiful. Keep us fixed on that, Jesus. We love you so much. Amen.